0: Well, if you have a Bible with you this evening, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. Tonight is our our last night in the study of Genesis, and so we we come to this chapter of Genesis 50, but we'll begin our reading at chapter 49, verse 28, to help set the context for us. Genesis 49, verse 28, this is the word of God. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their fathers said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, in the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, He drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. 40 days were required for it for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children on the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac unto Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Amen. We thank God for this His word.
1: Well, I heard last week about a certain undertaker who was sitting at home when he heard a knock on the door. And he went to answer the door, uh, and lo and behold, it was a pair of Jehovah's Witnesses had come uh, to see him. And they asked him, do you think there'll ever be an end to death? Do you think there'll ever be an end to death? Well, the undertaker, as he was, said, I certainly hope not, and went back into the house. Uh, But it was a good question, wasn't it? Do you think there'll ever be an end to death? This evening we come to Genesis chapter 50, the end of this book, really the end of the beginning. It's the book that introduced us to the problem of death, the reality of death. And yet as we come to the end of Genesis, we see that that problem is still unresolved. It is a problem each and every one of us will someday face, And yet what Genesis 50 does give us is an assurance as we face that problem, as we face the reality of death. And the ultimate assurance really is the assurance of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now we don't see the cross of Jesus Christ perhaps in Genesis 50, but we will see that assurance. And really three types of assurance I want to think about tonight, three types of assurance that will flow from the cross First, we have the assurance of forgiveness, the assurance of forgiveness, and we see, well, the brothers were lacking in that. Second, we have assurance in suffering, particularly the assurance that God is sovereign in our suffering. And finally then we have the assurance in facing death, the assurance of hope as we face death. So we begin then with the assurance of forgiveness. Last week, Jeff took us through Genesis 49 where Joseph, or Jacob rather, uh, lying on his deathbed has his 12 sons gathered around him and he blesses each of them. And Jeff really wanted us to think about that passage in terms of a a family portrait. He gave us that image and we've all seen a family portrait before. We can picture Jacob sitting there, his sons gathered around. There's a sad reality of life in this world that death in a family so often exposes divisions in a family and it is after the death of Jacob that this family portrait could almost be torn up the brothers fear that Joseph is now going to seek revenge after their father has died 17 years Jacob has been living in Egypt 17 years the brothers feel as if they've been living in the shadow of their father's protection but now that Jacob is out of the picture is Joseph going to stretch out his hand and take revenge After all, that's the way the world works. Someone wrongs you, you go and you get even. That's the way the brothers' minds work, certainly Simeon and Levi in particular, we've seen that with them. Naturally, they assume that's how Joseph's mind is going to work as well. He has the power, he has the position, It's just to stretch out his hand and get even. So what we see here is the sad reality that these brothers have been reunited, but never truly reconciled. Reunited, but never truly reconciled. Back in Genesis 45, Joseph told them that he forgave them. 17 years have passed, and they could never quite believe that forgiveness. It's a sad picture, isn't it? One filled with doubt, filled with insecurity. And in the Christian life, we can know those same doubts, we can know those same insecurities. To say, are my sins really forgiven? Am I really reconciled with God? How can I stand before him? Are my sins too great, too big, too bad, too many? That God could never love me? Maybe you're not even a Christian, but you find yourself asking those same questions. You find those same doubts in your mind. Often it is when death strikes, death in a family, that of a friend, tragedy in a community. We find ourselves asking those big questions about eternal matters. We find our heads wrestling with these doubts. Maybe it doesn't need to be something quite so big and dramatic as that. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the great Welsh preacher in London in the 20th century, and his biography tells the story of an elderly man who'd lived a very immoral life, but in his later years was wonderfully saved by the grace of God. Came along to church and one day even came to take communion. Came to the Lord's table. And people rejoiced to see the transformation in this man's life. That was the Sunday. Monday morning, he turns up at Lloyd Jones' door in tears, utterly broken. Why? Well, because he remembered something. Something he had said some 30 years ago. How he had cursed the name of Jesus one night in a drunken rage. And he couldn't forgive himself for this. He didn't think God could forgive him for this. He could see how all the other sins he had ever committed, yes, they could be wiped away, they could be washed clean, but not this one. This one thing, these words were so bad, so terrible, that he could never be forgiven. Lloyd-Jones was able to assure the man that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Maybe we find ourselves like that. Now, I'm not even 30 years old, and some of you have maybe seen 30 years or a couple of 30 years. Would you remember what you said 30 years ago? No, probably not but the heart has this strange ability to hold on to the most dreadful and terrible things we ever do and not to let go. Or that the devil comes along and whispers in our ear the accusations, reminds us of those former sins. He'll not let us let go of them. What do we do then? Well, 1 John 3 and verse 20 tells us that when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart that God is greater than our heart, what's that to say? Well, our hearts do condemn us. They hold on to sin. They treasure it in this strange, twisted way. But who are we going to listen to? The heart who is deceitful above all things? The devil who only wants to accuse and to destroy? Or the word of God that would tell us there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ? And maybe it is something major like death. Maybe it's a small, smaller thing, remembering something we did a long time ago but it causes us to doubt. It shakes our faith to the core, it makes us question everything. So it is with the brothers here, and we see they fall back into their old habits of scheming and lying, even lying in their dead father's name. What they do is they send this messenger to Joseph saying, how, oh, it was your father's dying wish that you would forgive your brothers and all would be rosy between you. And we see then in verse 17 that What does Joseph do? Well, he wept. Joseph wept. Why? Well, he wasn't angry. He knows his brothers are lying to him, but he's not angry at that. No, he weeps because he's heartbroken. Because he sees in this moment the true state of his brother's hearts. He knows that for the last 17 years, while they have been reunited, they've never been reconciled. He knows that for 17 years, it might have appeared all right on the surface, but deep down they were living in fear. They were living in doubt. They could neither believe nor receive Joseph's forgiveness to them. What a horrible position that was. And so Joseph wept. They thought Joseph would pursue revenge. He didn't want revenge. He had no interest in it. Because Joseph understood it wasn't his to take. It belongs to God. And he was not in the place of God. Romans 12 and verses 19 to 21 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, Joseph seemed to live his life by the words of Romans 12. Here's his brothers. And they were hungry, they were thirsty. And What does he do? He cares for them, provides for them, for their families, their children, their descendants. Verse 21, it says, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And remember back when we were in the book of James there, and James 2 and 16 tells us about the empty faith of the man who says, be warmed and well-filled, but does nothing to actually practically help anyone. It's empty words from an empty faith, not so with Joseph. But here his performance matches his promise. That his actions back up his words. He's going to care for his brothers. He's going to provide for them. This is more than mere forgiveness. He's not just bringing them into some neutral state, but actually into a state of blessing. A state of extreme provision. A state of true grace. Because what is grace but undeserved favor? And that's what Joseph is showing to his brothers here. Treating them infinitely better than they could ever deserve. Think of that familiar parable of the prodigal son. What does he do when he realizes the way he's been living? Comes back home says to his father that I've sinned against you. No longer worthy to be called your son. Might I at least just be a servant. Working in the house, in the fields, whatever it might be. Verse 18 here in Genesis 50. The brothers come to Joseph and say, we are your servants. And no longer feel worthy to be called your family. And what does Joseph do? Well, the father Killed the fattened calf and had a celebration, welcomed his son home. Joseph provides for his brothers, cares for them all, is forgiven, more than forgiven. It's maybe a picture here of that doctrine of adoption, isn't it? Where we come to God, and what does he do? He treats us far better than we deserve, pours out his grace upon us, treats us not just as servants, but as sons and daughters as we get that undeserved favor from him. And if that's the grace of Joseph, how much more assured can we be of the riches of the grace of our God, who is immeasurably more gracious than any man? And what a sweet assurance this is, to know our sins forgiven when we would come to God in repentance and in faith. There's repentance from the brothers here. You see it in verse 17. They talk about their sins, their transgressions. Now, it's uh, maybe not a wholehearted repentance or it's maybe not the full picture here. They wouldn't be lying and scheming if it was. But there is at the very least an acknowledgement. They have sinned against him. Isn't that where we begin? In coming to God, confessing those sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To know that as we look unto the Lord Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in him. That is the assurance of forgiveness the brothers needed. It's the assurance that Joseph could give to them. It's the assurance God alone can grant to us this evening. Joseph was able to forgive his brothers because he had an assurance. That's the second assurance we want to think of tonight. An assurance in suffering because he knew that his brothers had done a great evil against him but that God was using it for good. Look at verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph had actually said the same thing back in chapter 45 and verse 5. So this is no new revelation to him. This is a deep-felt assurance he has had for many years. His brothers were responsible for the great evil they have done. But there's no doubt in his mind, God is working good through it. He is a sovereign God, totally in control, even when he found himself in the pit. We have a God who does not just wait for us to make a mess of life so he can swoop in and fix it, but a God who is totally sovereign, both in the problem and in the solution. We have a God who we can look to when those dark storm clouds gather, when the fog is all around us and we cannot see clearly and know yet God is good and doing good in and through this. But is that just sort of Christian jargon, a wee slogan we tell ourselves when things get tough? Or is this something we actually believe, that we take God at his word, and maybe even know and feel and experience these things? Genesis 15, verse 20, it's kind of like Romans 8 and 28 in the Old Testament, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You say, well, this doesn't look good. This doesn't feel good. How has God at work through this? Well, Joseph had that assurance. God was using the evil of his brothers for good. And we see that time and again throughout the Bible. A sovereign God using the dreadful and terrible circumstances of this life for good. Because only a God who is altogether sovereign and altogether good can bring beauty from brokenness. He does it in the life of Joseph. But we'll see further proof throughout the Bible. And nowhere more clearly do we see this good coming from evil, beauty from brokenness, than in the cross of Jesus Christ. For there God brought the greatest good ever known from the ultimate evil. For there's Jesus, perfect, sinless, pure, righteous Jesus. The only truly good man who ever lived. And yet he suffers the ultimate evil. As he goes to the cross, having been betrayed, and beaten, and mocked, and stripped, and spat upon, and crowned with thorns, kneeled down to a cross. And all of this evil, evil at the hands of the Pharisees and the chief priests, evil at the hands of the Romans, evil at the hands of the devil. And yet God used it for good, to bring it about that many people should have life today, life in him. And so the cross of Christ does not mean that we will live a life free of suffering. But what it does mean is that when suffering comes, we know we have a savior who has first suffered for us and a God who is absolutely sovereign in that suffering, who is bringing good from evil, who is working all things for the good of his people. And yes, when you're in the fog, when you're in the dark valley, it's hard to see clearly what God exactly is doing but we have this assurance he's doing it for our good. We think of Job. There's few who ever suffered like Job. And if we read the beginning of the book of Job, we know why. Because the devil wanted to test and to tempt them. And you get to the end of the book of Job, and you discover that at the end, Job is none the wiser why any of this happened. He didn't get to peek behind the curtain the way we do as readers. He didn't know what the devil was up to. He didn't know what God was up to. He couldn't see clearly but he could trust throughout it all he had a God who was altogether good, altogether sovereign. We think even of where this is at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph utters these words. Who comes after Joseph? Well, you've got four centuries of life in Egypt, many of those as slaves, suffering at the hand of a cruel Pharaoh. Now, Genesis wasn't wrote down for those people, but certainly this story would have been passed from mouth to mouth, ear to ear, that God is working it for their good. Even in the midst of the slavery, the hardship, the suffering there, somehow, in some way, we can't see it clearly yet, but we know God is working this for our good. It is to be able to say, if we truly believe this, the words of Romans 8 and 18, to join with the Apostle Paul, and to cry that we consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. The glory that will be revealed, because it's coming. Well, maybe we can't see it clearly yet, but it's coming. And that's the assurance Joseph has. And if we hold to that same assurance today, then what we discover is that suffering loses its power and its sting in this life. Not just suffering, but even death also. And that then is the final thing we want to think about. Assurance facing death. That's the second assurance Joseph had. We see it clear. In chapter 50, we see the same assurance with his father, Jacob, as well. We will all ultimately face death. No getting away from it. No escaping it. That's the inevitable fact of life. You watch the movies where the hero rides off into the sunset to live and fight another day. The Bible paints a different picture. A much more realistic one. As we say, Genesis is the book that introduced us to the problem of death. And it leaves it as a problem unresolved. There was Adam and Noah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. And they all died. If you read Genesis chapter 5, it's just a long list of names. And he died, and he died, and he died. That's the problem we find ourselves with. And yet what the Bible does give us is a hope in the face of death. The hope of dying well. The hope of dying well, of a good death. We hear that word from time to time on the news when this issue gets debated, euthanasia. It's a word that actually means good death. It comes from the Greek, two words together, good death. And what is a good death in the eyes of the world? It's the idea that you take control, that you become sovereign in your own death. And ultimately it's to die in hopelessness. It's to die in despair. The Bible gives us a different picture, the hope of dying well, it's the hope of Joseph. We see him here that he died 110 years old. Now no doubt the second half of his life was much less eventful than the first half. Nevertheless, he's faithful to the end of his days. So maybe as you find yourself nearing what, 50, 60, whenever people start to think about slowing down, maybe we ought to be thinking about how we can be serving God. And when we get beyond that, maybe into the retirement years, think, how can we use this for the glory of God? Have I more time, more availability? Can I serve? Can I come alongside those who are younger? Because that's what Joseph seems to be doing. And you think, what legacy will I leave for my children and my grandchildren and for the church family? I was at a funeral a few weeks ago for a woman who really in everything she said and did demonstrated what a Christian woman should be. And she had been facing cancer She died well. She died surrounded by her family. More than anything, she died in faith. And her concern in those end days was not for herself, was not for her sickness, but it was for her family. So many of whom did not know Jesus. That was her great concern, and that was reflected very well in the funeral service itself. A concern to pass on that faith to make the name of Jesus known to that next generation. We see it with Joseph there in verses 23 and 24. On his deathbed, he's investing in that future generation. How is it that future generations would look back and think about Joseph? Let's jump forward centuries upon centuries to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 11, that great chapter that talks about the heroes of the faith. And Hebrews 11 and verse 22, this is how Joseph would be remembered. That at the end of his life, Joseph, by faith, made reference to the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. That at the end of his life, with his family gathered around him, he's telling them about the promises of God. And it's not just Joseph, but we saw the same thing with his father, Jacob. That at the end of his life, family gathered around, he wants to pass on the faith. What was that faith? It was in the promises of God. And it has to do with how they're going to be buried. How they're going to be buried, all about their bones. And what we find then in the book of Genesis is that death is never the end, but it's actually future oriented, we might say. That death is really a signpost that's pointing us to the future, it's pointing us beyond, till something yet to come. Now, death is certainly not the end, not for Jacob, not for Joseph, and not for you or me. So what were they looking to? Well, notice if we go back to chapter 49, Jacob wants to be gathered to his fathers in a place called Machpelah. There's a field, there's a cave, and there Abraham and Sarah are buried, there Isaac and Rebekah are buried, and there his wife Leah is buried. He wants to be gathered with them. Notice what he says about that field. It was bought from Ephron the Hittite. Abraham bought it from him. Now, why, as he lies on his deathbed, is he thinking about some random business transaction that his grandfather did all those years ago? That's well, because of this. Genesis 23, Sarah dies, Abraham goes to buy a field to bury her in. Ephron the Hittite offers to give him that field as a gift, but Abraham's clear, he wants to buy the field. It's going to be legally binding. It's going to be a transaction that can't go back. It's going to be his. Because God had promised to give that land to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. But at the end of his life, what did Abraham actually have? How much of that land had he come into possession of? Could he call his own? Only one little insignificant field of a little cave where he had buried his wife. That was it. And yet, what is that field? Well, it's not insignificant at all. because Jacob saw the significance of it. It was a sign, a visual sign, that God will not abandon his promise, but that God will fulfill it. And one day, he will bring his people to that land, not just to that field, but to that land. See the same thing in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 32. It's the last days of the city of Jerusalem. The armies of Babylon have laid siege to the city. It's about to fall, about to be destroyed. And God comes to Jeremiah and tells him to go and buy a field. A field that's actually in enemy territory. It's a ridiculous thing to do. It makes absolutely no sense. Why would you do it? Because God says to Jeremiah, one day you will sow and reap in this field once more. going to be carried off into exile. 70 years in exile in Babylon. But there's a field outside Jerusalem that is a promise. God will remember his people. And he will bring them back home, back to that land. And for Jacob, he had a field in the promised land, a field that was his, and it was a sign of God's promise. Yes, they would be in Egypt for a time, but God was going to bring them home. That's the promise he's trusting to. And so often the case that because our faith is weak, because we do find ourselves prone to doubt, that God uses these visual signs and aids to help us. We think of one of them even as Presbyterians. We baptize our children, don't we? And some of you think that's great and some of you think that's a bit odd. Why do we do it? Well, there's nothing magical about the water. No child is saved because their head is sprinkled. But what is it? It's a sign of God's promise. The great objection to that is the child is too young to have any faith of their own. No, but it's a sign of promise. We're trusting that child to God and we're trusting that one day that promise will be fulfilled. There will be an inheritance of faith, that the faith that is symbolized now will be realized in years to come. And what a hope that can give whenever a child grows up, maybe strays from the path the parents had set for him, finds himself far from God. But to remember that sign, to remember there's a field in Canaan and to keep trusting to keep praying and to commit that child before the Lord. That sign that gives us faith, that gives us strength that we should not doubt, but grants us that assurance. That was what Jacob was trusting to as he died. And so we see this great funeral procession. And really he's going up out of Egypt towards the promised land. Jacob's death is kind of a personal exodus, but it's a shadow of the exodus that his descendants will one day know. Here we have a pharaoh who says, "Go up." Well, we know there's coming a pharaoh; he'll be a bit more reluctant. The horsemen, the chariots of Egypt, are there. Next time we see them, it's going to be drowning in the Red Sea right after the Exodus. But it's a picture of what God's people will do. But notice there's difference with Joseph. Joseph doesn't say about being gathered to his fathers. He just wants one day—not right now, but one day—for his bones to go up to that promised land. What's the difference? Well, Joseph is entrusting his future to the future of his people and to his descendants. It is to say, my future will be your future. That if God is not faithful to his promise, if God abandons us and leaves us here in Egypt, then I'm stranded here with you. But if our God is faithful to his promise, if he comes and brings us up and brings us to that promised land, then I'm coming with you. And I will inherit it just as you do also. That's Joseph's great hope, his dying hope there, that what should come with his descendants should come to him also. That's his dying assurance. So what is our hope then as we face death? For Joseph, it's not his wealth, his power, his status, or any of that there. That's all worthless in this moment. But it's the promise of God. It's that assurance he has. and It's the assurance. And hopefully we leave this place this evening holding to ourselves. Joseph's put in a coffin, laid in the ground. What is a coffin? What is a coffin for a Christian? A wooden box? It's a seed. A seed planted in the ground, knowing that one day in God's time, new life will come forth. That's how Genesis ends. Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. It began Adam in a garden in Eden, Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. It began Adam delighting in the presence of the Lord. It ends with Joseph awaiting for that presence to be restored. But of course, Joseph, Jacob, they're both looking to this field with a cave, with a grave in it. But for us today, we're also looking at a field. We're looking at a grave looking at a cave where the stone was rolled away to know that it's empty to know that he is not here for he is risen that he is risen indeed that we can say when asked what is our only hope in life and death christ alone and as joseph says that god will surely visit you we can be sure that he will because he already has and he's coming again he came to moses in the burning bush at the time of the exodus He came to Bethlehem 2,000 years ago and he's coming once more. He's coming once more and when Christ does visit us, when he returns, we know that death will be no more. We know that all the sufferings of this present world will be a thing forgotten. We know that he is coming to make all things new, coming ultimately to bring us to himself that we should know that inheritance, that promised land He has prepared for us. This is the Christian's great hope. It is the Christian's great assurance. But tonight is it your hope also. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word and the hope and assurance it grants to us to know that in the name of Jesus we can find forgiveness, forgiveness, that in the cross of Christ we can know a God who brings good from evil and beauty from brokenness. To know that even as we face death, we can have the hope of dying well. We can have the assurance that you are faithful to your promise. To know that Christ will return and that we need not grieve as those who have no hope do, that as Christ surely died and rose again, so too through him, you will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What a hope and a promise this is unto us, Lord. We thank you for it. We ask this evening you would help us to look unto Christ, to know that cleansing forgiveness, to know his unmeasurable grace, and to know the assurance that comes only through being reconciled to him for this we do pray in his name amen